Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. In today's episode, we speak with Farmer Rishi, a farmer, educator, and consultant based in Los Angeles, working in the field of regeneration. We chat a bit about the idea of urban agriculture and some of its shortfalls, and what are better options to work with folks in trying to empower them to grow their own food. Additionally, we chat a bit about our own perspectives and some of the baggage that comes with being a first-generation immigrant here in the United States and getting into something like farming. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this conversation. It was a great chat, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the feedback from you. Farmer Rishi, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into education and agriculture? Yeah, thank you, Andy, for having me on. It's been definitely a bit of a long journey to to get to where I am today. In college, I was a computer science major and just decided while I was studying that, that it wasn't what I really wanted to do with my life. And I wanted to kind of engage with something that was a little more, felt a little more tangible and a little, a little more like embodied, I guess. And so while I was in school, I, I got involved with gardening and then I spent some time on uh, a farm in India during and, and after school. And uh, when I moved back home, you know, and after I had graduated, I moved back in with my parents and I was just, I knew I wanted to do something farming related. And I was living in the suburbs of, of Los Angeles uh, with my parents and, and they kind of gave me the go ahead to start converting their yard into like an urban garden or a small, you know, urban farm. And uh, it just kind of came the education part of it. I, I think I've just always been someone who likes to help others learn. And, uh, and so just, you know, very kind of organically came about that, okay, I'm starting a garden here and I'd love to help other people learn about gardening, learn about plants and soil as well. And so I started teaching classes, giving workshops, doing tours, and definitely the, you know, the educational component of my work has evolved beyond just uh, gardening practices now, but that was the start of it. Great. I'm kind of curious with your background. Um, is your family from India? Yeah, my parents uh, originally from India. My parents are also immigrants as well. And it's. I personally think it's really interesting to see, I think, the relationship that folks from other parts of the world have with things like farming versus here in the US, where it's almost been kind of, I guess you could say, like disconnected mm-hmm. from the way we live. I was curious if you thought that relationship at all kind of impacted how they reacted to you being like, hey, I want to do this thing. And I know it's kind of weird here, but what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, that's that's an interesting question because, you know, India um, is so stratified in terms of like, you know, class and that relates to farming so directly over there as well. So my family and, and most, you know, Indian immigrants who've come here didn't come from a very agricultural background most most indians that have immigrated to america would have been considered upper caste and probably didn't have too much relationship directly to farming and that's the same for my family we were my you know recent ancestry is more like a landowning class and not a actually hands in the soil working the fields class you know there's definitely like a stigma among 
the Indian immigrant community here against farming and, you know, against doing anything that's manual labor. That's not something, you know, I would say that most kids like me who've grown up here, their parents would be pretty disappointed to hear that their kid was going into farming. Maybe one of the differences in my family is that my my grandparents and my mom have always been gardeners since my since my grandparents moved here in the 1970s they took up gardening as a as a hobby and it's something that they they really enjoy it wasn't super foreign it was something that my mom actually really enjoyed doing and was and was supportive of supportive of of me kind of taking this up as a profession somewhat you know my grandparents on the other hand have definitely been very hesitant to maybe be supportive it's just a phase <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i don't know it's not it's not really clear and simple i don't know i think you get different levels of support from different people in my family yeah it's like i said my my parents are from italy and they were farmers my dad wasn't but my grandparents were and um they they were always very close to the land but at the same time i was like there's a reason why we left southern italy where we farmed like don't don't do what we did and so there's like this really weird dichotomy of both respect for the land and the practice but also being like but not for you right uh, <laughs> um i think all this kind of ties back into this idea of one of the common themes that you talk about which is our relationship with the landscape and with what you might call quote unquote nature i really want to talk about this idea of like naturalism and right. I think it's a really interesting term that's uh, evolved really quickly in the last probably couple decades as it's been kind of commodified. Mm -hmm. and, and it's really interesting because with this term, you see it both on the left and the right, meaning different things. And this idea of like going back to the land, like what we're talking about, where we're a couple generations out from these types of relationships with food and things like that. But there's definitely some issues going on as people are trying to reclaim that relationship with nature and food and things like that. And I know it's something you've talked about a bit in the past about this idea of, you know, nature's always right, isn't really accurate, or it, it's a little bit more complicated that. So uh, I'll punt it to you and let you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this has been something that um, took me a really long time to really understand and like kind of see beyond the framework that was handed to me. I don't even mean that in like just in the terms of gardening and farming, but it's like, this is the idea of nature is really, really embedded into, you know, what you might call like Western colonial society. And I started to really like question this, you know, even this whole concept a couple of years ago when something about this concept was just not making sense to me anymore because, you know, we, we hear we are not separate from nature. We are nature. And then on the other hand, people would be saying things like, and this is what happens in nature, you know? And then I started to feel like, wait, you know, something is not making sense here about how we're framing our place on this planet and our role on this planet. Something is just feeling really, really off for me. But I think it's interesting, like even what you were just saying, like the back to the land movement. I mean, even in the framing of that, right? Like the back to the land, like, okay, when did you leave land? Like, you know, like, what do you mean back to the land? Where, where are you right now that isn't on land? Yeah. And so it's just this idea that the idea of nature, nature is just such a, a very, very strange concept once you really start to examine. One of the main scientific journals 
scientific and medical journals in the in the world is called Nature. And the framing of that is kind of that science observes and studies nature. And nature, again, is this separate outside, I don't know, structure or being or spirit, uh, depending on, you know, who you are in the, or what your beliefs are maybe, but, you know, it's this, this outside structure that humans are not a part of, but interact with, but mostly in a, you know, negative, destructive way, you know, and that, and nature exists out there. And it's this, this perfect, you know, perfect thing that we're always striving to, to do best by, but we can't really do that well by it because we're not part of it. We don't understand it, you know? And so I've really just, you know, I basically, I've come to the point where I just don't accept this idea. I don't accept the idea of nature you know, and I published a piece uh, about this a couple of months ago that I just titled Nature Does Not Exist. And uh, I've been through my writing kind of exploring what it means to us uh, as people to say nature does not exist and how, how this concept of nature really like is very confusing, is very muddying, is like puts us in a very like foggy, difficult to see place. And I really, really feel that deconstructing nature and moving away from a human versus nature, human separate from nature paradigm is key to reestablishing ourselves as caretakers or caregivers of of, uh, this planet and finding healing for ourselves. Yeah, I think we have a bad habit of conflating the fact that we have so much impact on ecology, meaning that we're not a part of it. So one term that I was jokingly using was that we're like fire beavers. So like beavers, you know, use water and they'll flood out an entire area and completely change the ecosystem. And we kind of do or historically have done the same thing, except with fire, where we've used fire to manage entire ecosystems. And, you know, we instead of humans in nature versus humans outside of nature, what does it mean to be in nature to think about more? I think the problem with the term nature is that it's, it oversimplifies a really complicated relationship and it's not really appropriate for a lot of the ways we're thinking of using the term. And I think that's where people get really frustrated is the language is just so limiting. And I get, I think that also feeds into some of these issues of how the term is, I guess, weaponized by various organizations, political groups, and so on, and how we interact and like you were talking about like colonization and this idea of like constructing on in our image what we think nature should look like. And mm-hmm. I think for like a vast portion of people right now that are very concerned about things that are going on on the planet, both ecologically and in terms of economics, that vision is like a back to land homesteader colonialism, which is really problematic in a lot of different ways, especially here in the United States. So I'm interested, I guess, as you've been kind of unpacking this understanding of nature or the lack thereof nature, you know, is is this something that you see? I mean, especially I think like with vaccines in the last year or two, do you have this weaponizing of nature? You know, I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, I I mean, I very honestly, I would say that nature is an idea founded in racist and white supremacist ideals. And I say that because, you know, again, it's this idea of one, nature being outside, but two, nature also being this perfect ideal. And that idea, you know, that the concept of the perfect ideal 
is very tied to, you know, almost like the concept of the, the ideal person, the ideal blonde haired, blue eyed, white skinned person. And how in this, you know, in the racialized conception, it's like your personal distance from blonde hair, blue eyed, white skin is your distance from perfection. And in nature, it's like your distance from, you know, the wild forest where humans don't, where people don't exist and the animals and the birds and the, you know, soil and the fungi live in some perfect balance. It's like this idealized, even just the idea that there is this ideal, this ideal place, this ideal conception is essentially a, a, a racist idea where constantly judging ourselves against something that doesn't exist. The beautiful, perfect nature that people write about in, you know, these, uh, you know, romantic poems, like it's not there. Before, you know, when you walk into a forest that's been well cared for, it's beautiful. Many times forests can be beautiful. Many times forests can be peaceful. Many times forests can be refuges. And, you know, one of the things that really hit me, I was traveling uh, after college and I, I went to this forest monastery, I think it was in Thailand. And when I was reading about it, they were saying that, you know, this monastery inhabits one of the few remaining primeval forests in, in Thailand, meaning, you know, it had never been cut down. And when I walked in there, that place was, can I curse here? Yeah. Okay. That place was fucking terrifying. Like being in that forest was extremely terrifying. It was almost, you know, I went there midday. It was like evening inside. And it was so dark because the canopy was so heavy. And there's so many animals like running around up in the canopy, down on the floor, you know, so there was this very loud noise, like the, 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 just like the noise level was really, really loud. And then there was like some screaming, you know, monkeys or something like, hey, 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 you know, like, so I'm just in this like dark forest, you know, it's me and my friend and it's loud and like, you know, it's very, I mean, part of it being scary is probably also that we're, we're um, not, you know, we weren't used to being in a space like that. But yeah, so I, I, what I'm trying to say is, Forests can be beautiful. Forests can be scary. Forests can be terrifying places. Forests can be very violent places. And so I think when we fall into this conception of this separate, perfect, you know, humanless space, we are forgetting, you know, like a lot of what that these places actually are, you know, and, and we're kind of enforcing our perception onto the space instead of actually being being there and being present and being fully accepting of, you know, the world that we live in. And I think that plays out a bit in our landscaping here as well. It shouldn't always look pretty and that's okay. So I want to tie this back into the actual experiences you've had farming. So if you could talk a little bit about how all of this has kind of played back into your education and some of the actual agricultural stuff you're doing. Mm-hmm. I think the reason that my work has tended to um, I've kind of been in like this borderlands of farming for so long or almost exclusively, you know, being farming in, in the urban world, specifically in Los Angeles. And so a lot of these ideas like, okay, like we were saying earlier, like back to the land, which was this idea that if you live in the city and you wanted to, to participate in the healing of soil and plants, you needed to leave 
and go back to the land, right? And so for me as an urban farmer, I live on that border, that constructed border. And so that's allowed me to kind of deconstruct the idea of that border even existing. And so, you know, I started um, with my parents' yard and their house is in the suburbs of LA. And, you know, in the suburbs, you're supposed to have a lawn and you're supposed to have these bushes that are trimmed into boxes. And, you know, you're supposed to just like, you know, their house is supposed to look like every other house on the street. And you go, you know, you go to the grocery store and you buy your food and you let the water from your property drain onto the street. And then you buy water from the uh, aqueduct to water your lawn. And so to convert that space and to see really like how easy it was to bring abundance into that space, especially in an urban context where we have, we have so-called waste just like floating around all over the urban environment, right? Like there's just food scraps, cardboard, wood chips, coffee grounds, juice pulp. You know, there's so much energy. There's so much, so much like food, food for people, food for soil, food for plants. People are paying to get rid of this. How easy it is to feed the garden when the city is actually so full of food, you know? And so very quickly in urban garden, you can take a soil that's been neglected, abused, forgotten, and just bring it to a state of abundance that, you know, and honestly, like in rural areas, it's actually difficult to get it, to get to these kind of states of soil health that you can get to pretty easily in urban areas because there's just so much and there's just sheer quantities of material. Yeah. And I'll say like, I think part of that is you have byproducts of humans and you have more people in cities. So by definition, you know, no one's cutting down trees and chipping them someplace where people aren't annoyed by that tree or that tree doesn't fall on someone's car or whatever. Uh, so that gives you that access to food byproducts. So I, I use a lot of food waste from food pantries that otherwise would get tossed after it's gone through the food pantry and no one wants it. And it'll be, you know, shredded carrots and this and that. And um, whatever it is goes to the chickens and it's not pretty. And I, I'm sure that's not ideal for what my neighbors would like, but <laughs> it converts into compost really quickly. And those are resources that we have available that otherwise are just going quite literally to waste. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy reminding you that if you're looking for more content outside of the scope of the podcast or sources, recommended readings, or ways to support us, you can find that at poorproles.com. Further, we've expanded our delivery into video content on our YouTube channel, where we're able to show step-by-step how to do many of the processes that we talk about within the podcast. We have also started a Twitch channel where we platform various folks on skills from DIY mushroom production to the various methods to keep land out of the hands of developers. Again, all this can be found at poorproles.com, and we look forward to seeing you over there. One of the things that I realized was that all of these ideas of how you build an ecosystem or how you function within an ecosystem, they don't disappear because I live in a city. And I think actually this term concrete jungle is so apt, right? Because the city is, you know, when I compare my experience, when I go to downtown LA to when I was in that primeval forest in Thailand, 
it's kind of very similar. There's a lot of smells. There's a lot of noises. It's very dark. You know, I feel the, I feel very fearful that, you know, in the jungle, some animal is going to, you know, tiger is going to come out and kill me. And in the urban space, like I'm looking around because there's these mechanic tigers flying by at 40 miles an hour. And I'm afraid that I'm going to die from those. Like, I really think it's an urban jungle. And I think we have to understand cities as ecosystems uh, or as gardens and really the same principles apply. So again, that's part of what I'm, you know, what for me being in an urban and suburban area, I started to understand like, no, this is not separate. You know, there is no part of this earth that is not earth. You know, that's something I tell people like, there is no part that when we have the idea of nature in our mind, then we say, oh, that's over there, nature. And this over here is not nature. And, you know, I tell people nature for me does not exist. And two, there is no part of this earth that is not earth. There's no part of this. Just because you're in a city doesn't mean you've escaped the laws of earth or the, you know, the systems of earth. Like we're still here. You're still living on land. You know, you are literally made of earth, even, you know, your concrete houses and your asphalt roads and your plastics, like it's still all earth. There's nothing, of, there's no part of this planet that isn't earth. The principles still apply. That whole argument is really interesting because of the implications it has on our relationship. And again, to circle back to what I brought up before, the the weaponization that's happened of the term like natural products and nature. And like you said, going back to nature. So with that in mind is, uh, do you feel a, a responsibility in challenging this this concept of nature and how it's been weaponized like does that politics work into your agriculture and the the things that you teach yeah absolutely i mean the weaponization of nature is pretty obvious just in, you know if you look even at like kind of right-wing politics one of the examples that always comes up to my mind is, is when right-wing groups were were protesting against gay marriage or or make trying to make you know i mean being gay was illegal for so long right and what's what's one of the slogans right like homosexual sex is against nature we hear that kind of language all oh this is against nature this is against nature like if it was against nature it would not be possible (laughs) like (laughs) if it defied the laws of nature you couldn't or you know supposedly laws of nature the laws of the universe if it defies the laws of the universe you wouldn't be able to do it right and so I think that kind of like that kind of weaponization is is so obvious. I mean, even think about like uh, anti-miscegenation laws, right? What did they say? They said sex between black person and white person is unnatural. It should not happen. It's our job to enforce that this this type of this sex does not happen or this marriage does not happen. So I, for me, I really like this is not something new. This is a concept that is really again seated in white supremacy we've kind of like over the years been understanding like oh okay like this part a white man and a and a black woman can get married and that's not against nature and a man and a man can have sex and that's not against nature like we've been slowly like removing items from the list of what's against nature but we still haven't removed the idea that there is something against nature I see that so much in the environmental movement. I see that so much in the permaculture movement. And when we have people saying things like, oh, uh, in, in nature, the soil is never uncovered. 
you know, and I'm walking around like <laughs> soils uncovered all over the place. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, you know? <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, you know, I think it points to like, to go back to what you were talking about, like this idea of like an envisionment of what nature looks like and cancer is natural. Nature isn't by definition a good thing in terms of it, like being a positive force on whether it's the life in the soil or us when we may have cancer or something like that, you know, and like this term, like nature's always right, gets tossed around a lot. That's, I think, disingenuous at best and dangerous and manipulative at worst. Yeah. And you, I mean, we saw, we see it so much right now with, you know, people's ideas in relation to the vaccine, you know, vaccine hesitancy is primarily coming from, or not, maybe not primarily, but like a large portion of vaccine hesitancy is coming from the like natural health movements, the permaculture world, even the ecological and environmental world where people have this idea of what should happen, right? And also the idea that man's work is some kind of manipulation that's going against, you know, higher order framework or something and that our hands are inherently toxic. You know, that's something I've written about just saying like, we have to understand, we have to live in our context. Like even when it comes to food, people who advocate for healthy food and, and you know, organic food and regeneratively grown food, like, you know, I'm not totally, I think just part of that is, it's just very convoluted, you know, to tell someone who lives in, a an urban area who's low income or no income or in debt and has health problems and you're going to tell them you know what you need to do you need to spend triple the amount of money that you're spending on food right now to buy organic food you know it's just like you're not that's not helpful to that person in that context and also you're kind of you're going to end up kind of shifting the blame to them for their issues for their health issues like you, you're not, you don't value yourself enough. You're not spending enough money on food. Like, okay, the, the person doesn't have any money to spend on food. You know, it's not their fault that they don't not able to afford that food. So why don't we talk about what's healthy for people in their context? And so what's healthy for someone? What can you do? What's within your power? You know, what are the resources available to you so that you can actually affect your health in a positive way? And not let, why does that need to be focused on eating organic or eating regenerative? You know, it might come down to someone deciding what's the healthiest option for them that they can afford at McDonald's. And that's okay. You know, that's just, it's just a reality of their situation. We can't be judgmental of the real, their reality. We can only do the best in our, in our reality. And so much more of the problem, you know, the problems that we face are so like, structural, societal. I wish that as a society, we would spend more time and energy on fixing structures than address, you know, than honestly like blaming people for their problems. Yeah. I worked for a nonprofit for a while and managed some greenhouses. And uh, we would do a lot of projects on like bringing those foods into communities, uh, urban communities and disenfranchised communities. And that's just not enough in a lot of ways, even if you, you're making a lot of assumptions and saying like, here's, you know, a head of lettuce and some celery and some beets or whatever it might be that you grew and just being like, here's some food, go eat healthy. And it's like, well, (laughs) 
that's not a solution. First off, it's just a one-time thing. Second off, you're assuming they have the time to cook it and prepare it. Third, you're assuming they have the resources to cook it and prepare it. Uh, you know, it's it, there's so many problems with that that idea of like, well, if you go and just get the food, even if we bring the food to you, like somehow this is going to solve this systemic problem. Even if it's well-meaning, it's not helpful at best and it's offensive at worst. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, you can't solve structural problems with like some little, you know, meaningful or attempt to be meaningful effort to quote unquote, teach someone how to eat right or whatever. Right. So how does that play into what you're doing? You know, I've been in this urban farming world for quite a while and, and I see this issue, right? Like just exactly what you're saying, especially in the urban farming world. I mean, I mean, the recent kind of resurgence of urban farms has been with this idea that, oh, you know, grow food where people are hungry, right? And there's so many problems with that conception again, because, okay, grow food where people need it, right? Well, okay, well, people are in urban areas, the land in urban areas, that's the most expensive land in the world. The water in urban areas, it's the most expensive water in the world. Paying people to work in urban areas. I mean, there's so many things financially going against you, growing food in an urban area. It ends up being extremely expensive to grow this food. And then you want to give it away for free, right? And it's like, it just doesn't work. You usually end up having to be reliant on an outside source of funding. And then you're, you know, and then you're just at the whims of some philanthropic person or organization. And when you run out of funding, the farm closes. And I've seen that happen dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the last 10 years. Uh, and so what, you know, the, the work that we're trying to do at, at the organization that I'm involved with, Servodia Institute, I'm the executive director and the founder, our farm, the farm that we, we have in uh, Pomona here in Los Angeles, we tried that model. You know, for three years, we operated a CSA. We grew, you know, we tried to grow as much produce as possible every year for those three years. And we did, you know, by that measure, we did incredibly well. I mean, we grew on like, like 1,500 square feet of actual bed space, I think. Uh, I could be wrong there. Uh, no, I think it was more like 5,000 square feet of actual bed space. Uh, we grew in the last year, we grew like 14,000 pounds of food. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, by that measure, we, we, we were very successful. But then, you know, at the end of these three years, I was looking back and I was examining, okay, like, what was our impact, right? And, and what was the amount of effort that we had to put in? And the amount of effort was insane. I mean, we're have like multiple people working many long hours to grow this amount of food. And, and while that's commendable, what's the impact of that, that food and you know, that amount of food, while it seems significant, when you look at the population that you're, uh, you're sitting among, then it's so minuscule it's a very limiting way of impacting the community that's around you because, you know, you can hardly feed 0.01% of the population of the, the city that you're in. Yeah. That's like maybe you fed a small apartment building for a year. Maybe. <laughs> out of a whole city. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we haven't even talked about like the issues that you were mentioning about like 
how much of this produce is actually getting cooked and eaten, you know, how much of it is actually going to people that need it. And so I just realized like, this is not the way for, for us to be impactful. And I started to really think about and consider the experiences that I've had, you know, running an urban farm. And so many people would come to the farm and tell me this is a valuable place. You know, in different ways, they would say, this is a really valuable place. This is a really valuable place. I really enjoy coming here. I really enjoy being here. And so that's when, when I started to, to really consider that input that I've been getting. Um, then we started to shift the whole framework of what our farm is and how we serve people and, you know, how we engage the community. And so the shift started to go towards, you know, this is a really valuable place. This is a really valuable place. Okay, well, if this is a really valuable place, let's just try to get as many, let people enjoy the space. People enjoyed being in the farm, being in the garden, being among the trees, hearing the birds sing, watching the butterflies fly, you know, seeing the flowers, smelling the flowers, tasting some of the produce, sure. But it was, we started to shift towards how can we give people the experience of being in a nurturing, embracing, beautiful space rather than feeding them the food, you know, well, of course there's going to be food grown in this space, but let's focus on just creating a beautiful space and then trying to engage the community so that as many people as possible from the local community can actually come here and, and be in the space in a nurturing way. And so now the focus of our organization is, is that. And so what, what we have is we're converting our farm away from, you know, like row crop produce production and towards just being a really very dynamic, beautiful, abundant, big food producing, bounteous garden where you can come and learn about gardening. You can come and take workshops with us. We do a, we do gardening workshops once a month. We have like various art and craft workshops, herbal workshops. Uh, we're trying to get a schedule of like meditation and like body movement, whether that's yoga, dance, like ecstatic dance, movement classes. Uh, we have about a third of our entire space is dedicated to being a, a nursery where we grow out plants that are mostly food and food and herbal plants that we know work well in our local region. So people come to us to get plants so they can get their garden started at home. And then, you know, people just come and just come and enjoy the space. You know, we had 30 fruit trees planted on the farm before, but now that we're taking out um, most of the row crops, we're planting like a hundred more fruit trees. We're putting in a pond, we're putting in a, gather, a couple of gathering spaces. So people will be able to come and just hang out, pick fruit, eat fresh, fresh fruit that you probably never had before. We um, let people use our space as a venue space. So we're doing like baby showers and birthday parties and we have a Friendsgiving coming up. And so now it's like you see that the number of connections coming into our farm has grown exponentially because we can impact so many more people when we're just focused on impacting people by letting them come to the space. Yeah. And giving them the authority to decide how they want to interact with that space. Exactly. And what they want to take home and, you know, what's valuable for them. And so now we're bringing in a lot more income with less effort 
so now we have four paid staff on the farm where we used to have one and, and we're growing. We have 200 people who are donating to us regularly as members of our organization who want to continue to see us grow and, and continue to see our impact grow. Uh, and I'm seeing finally that we're coming to a model of what an urban farm can be that is impactful, that is engaging, that people want to support, and that financially I'm finally I'm seeing a model that we can actually replicate and be more self-sustaining and not, you know, we don't, we have no foundational support. We have no grant support. We're completely, primarily, we have people who are donating to us on average of $8 a month. And we have about more than half of our income coming from our nursery. So we're, we're creating a model that can actually grow itself. Yeah, that's really cool. You said that you think this is a replicable model. Now, I'm really interested about the traditional urban farm you've, you have worked. If you think there's a place for that type of work, or do you think that the model is just by definition, not really something we should be thinking about or working on, but instead of rethinking about how we can give people the authority to make those types of food decisions within those spaces? Yeah, you know, I, I think the... The kind of row crop production urban farm model, I would say that that's, you know, if there is a space for it, it's a very limited space, you know, much more limited than what we currently imagine. One thing that's interesting is like cities fund public parks and public parks are just lawns, cement, and, you know, maybe like a baseball diamond. I think that there's so much space for the public and government to support a model like this, where as a community deciding that, you know, we want a space like this and we want it to be publicly accessible. We want gardens and, you know, urban forests, like that should be a priority of, of the city to create spaces of our cities, of our governments to create spaces like this. Yeah, so I, I don't see the, the food, the produce-focused urban farm model continuing for very long, other than as, you know, maybe an educational uh, or experiential space. Cool. Yeah, I, one of the things that I've always struggled with when I had been working similar to that type of work is the fact that a lot of the food you grow isn't really calorically dense. It feels like you're, you're doing the, uh, the side salad. And you're never really addressing the main meal. Yeah. I've always had that kind of frustration with this. I was really interested to know what your thoughts were on it. Farmer Rishi, if people want to see or hear or check out any of your work, do you have social medias, website, anything like that? Yeah, uh, a couple things. You know, if you if you want to get involved with what we do, I would encourage people to sign up for our membership at Sarvodia Institute. So it's sarvodiainstitute.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at Sarvodia Farms. Um, and we have this membership program. We're doing a membership drive all the month of December this year. For $5 a month, you can sign up to support us. I do an online gardening lesson via Zoom for all of our members. And we have this online portal that you can see. Join the lesson live or watch recordings and then there's a couple of membership levels where you can see all the past recordings as well. We've got like almost 15 lessons up there already now. 
if you want to support our work in that way, I'd appreciate it. Uh, you can follow me at Farmer Rishi. Uh, I also have a website with my writings, farmerrishi.com. And then the other project we didn't really get a chance to talk about is uh, I'm the co-founder of a company called Healing Gardens. And uh, what we're doing with that is um, we are helping urban gardens bring people into their spaces. So it's kind of like Airbnb-ish for urban gardens. So if you want to offer events or workshops or let people use your space as a venue, you can list it with us on Healing Gardens. We provide the insurance, the online listing, the transactions, the email communications, and that's at, just go to our website, healinggardens.co. And you can sign up. And if you want to look for a garden in your area, you can go there too and, and uh, find a garden near you. Farmer Rishi, thanks so much. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes or go support us on Patreon. Until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Almanac.